Well, I'd like to begin by saying thank you to Daryl and Marlisa and to all of those who shared testimonies um, during this series, uh, to Chuck and Sue Waterfield, Harley Cooker, Rebecca Waybright, and Titus and Linda Peachy. Um, every single one of them was a thing of beauty, um, provocative, challenging, encouraging, maybe a little bit scary. Um, in other words, um, just right. So I'm really grateful to, to all of you for sharing um, a little bit of yourselves with us and giving us examples of how to live faithfully in the empire. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything. I'm struck by how frequently Paul uses language like this in his letter to the Colossians, how many times he uses words like all and everything to describe what belongs to Christ. It reminds me of that question that someone once asked Jesus about paying taxes, and Jesus said to give Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God, and how the unspoken punchline there was that it all belongs to God, which leaves Caesar with Nothing. Despite Caesar's claims and his ability to argue the point with all the power at his disposal, in the end, nothing belongs to Caesar and everything belongs to God. And over and over again in this little letter, Paul has reinforced that same point. Yes, the empire does loom large in the background. And yes, the empire does seem to be everywhere and to hold all the cards and to be the only real power on the earth. But behind and over and under and around everything, all things, is Christ. It all belongs to Christ. And it is all being restored to Christ. And there is nothing that anyone, including Caesar, can do to keep Christ from redeeming everything. In fact, Caesar, too, will one day bow in worship of the one the Colossians already recognize as Lord. Over and over again, Paul has reinforced this point about the way things really are in the universe. And as the letter unfolds, he makes the case that what is true on the macro level, on the universal level, must also be true on the micro level, on the level of individual personal relationship. And so he calls the Colossians to live in ways which bear witness to what has already happened, what they know to be true, to create a new community which reveals the truth of what Jesus has already done for them and points toward the completion of that work that was begun on the cross. When our text for today, Paul tightens the focus even more, insisting again that everything really does mean everything, and that the truth of Jesus must impact even the Colossians' most intimate relationships, that the all of Christ includes the relationship between wives and husbands, children and parents, and slaves and masters. Nothing is outside of what Christ has done and is doing. It all belongs to Christ and it all ought to reflect the truth of what God has done in Christ. Now, to put this in context, let's remember that the empire was arranged hierarchically. Caesar was the ultimate father, and everyone else was under his authority and subject to his will. And that pattern was replicated throughout Roman society. Men, of course, had the best place. Slaves and women and children, on the other hand, occupied the lower rungs of the Roman hierarchy. They were treated as property to be bought and sold and dealt with as their male masters wished. 
And at first glance, these verses don't seem to challenge that imperial status quo, certainly not in the way that we wish they would. We wish Paul were as clear here as he was several verses earlier when he told the Colossians that all such distinctions among people were over and that Christ was now all and in all. But instead here, he seems to uphold the traditional and even imperial arrangement. Or does he? Well, Paul is certainly not calling for the dismantling of these relationships. He doesn't demand that husbands relinquish their place. He doesn't call wives to resist. He doesn't incite children to rebel against their uh, father's authority over them. He does not proclaim liberation for the slaves. And from our vantage point, we find Paul very disappointing in this regard because we've seen how his words here and elsewhere have been used to prop up and justify a variety of forms of oppression and abuse. And we wonder how to square these words with the liberating words of Galatians 3.28 or Colossians 3.11. Some have used these texts to dismiss Paul as a misogynist. Others have used texts like this um, as biblical justification to keep women in their place. Still others read this the way we read prohibitions against mixing milk and meat or eating lobsters as contextually bound and quaint vestiges of a worldview that is entirely alien to our own and so irrelevant. We are well aware of all that Paul did not do in these few verses. But I think it's a lot harder to see what Paul did do. And so let's take a step back again. For us, the language of our faith has become so familiar that I think it's lost its edge. And one of the purposes of this series was to help us try to hear the Colossians, the letter to the Colossians in a way that maybe more closely resembled the way Paul's first readers heard it, to help us hear not only the theological claims that Paul is making, but also the political and social claims he's making, claims which directly challenged and even subverted the claims of empire. And my hope was that by painting the empire in the starkest terms possible, that what Paul was up to would be revealed at least as starkly. And so let's try to do the same thing here with an admitted degree of trepidation. Let's try to hear what Paul was saying as his first listeners might have heard it. The hierarchical nature of society was a given for first century people. It was no more subject to debate than the need for air to breathe or food to eat. It was simply the way things were. Philosophers justified it according to nature. Um, religious leaders justified it as according to the will of God. And even if somebody were to question the status quo, there was nowhere to go to register a protest. Like so much else related to empire, the structure of society and the relationships within it were simply the way things were. Caesar was over all. Rich men were over poor men. Men were over women and children. Masters were over slaves. And so it was. Now consider what Paul does. Paul challenges that tidy structure by claiming that it too is under Christ. Wives are, just, wives are to submit to their husbands. Now, if we stop there, nothing has changed. The imperial structure remains intact. But Paul adds these words, as is fitting in the Lord. Children, obey your parents. Again, stop there and all is well in the empire. But add these words, for this is your acceptable duty in the Lord. Slaves, obey your masters 
No subversion there. But then Paul says these things, fearing the Lord as done for the Lord. From the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You serve the Lord Jesus Christ. It seems to me that if we take a step back from what we have learned to hear as merely religious jargon and oppressive jargon at that, and listen for how this might have been heard by Paul's readers, I think we can catch at least a hint of subversion of the imperial status quo. Because it seems to me that even if Paul is not going as far as we wish he would, he nevertheless is calling the Colossians to consider what it means to live faithfully in the empire and to do so even in these most basic relationships. Once again, Paul is insisting that the Colossians see that everything, even and especially those things they've long since learned to stop questioning and just accept as the way things are meant to be, they belong to and fall under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so wives are called to wonder. I mean, submission was very clear under the empire. Women learned it from the moment of their birth. They understood themselves to be little more than objects to be disposed of in whatever way men wanted. If they were lucky... They were given to a good and kind man. If not, well, there was no sense complaining. Either way, submission meant doing whatever their father or husband told them to do. It was the way things had always been. But Paul introduces a question. What might it mean to submit to one's husband as is fitting in the Lord? How might that qualify or change the meaning of submission? And what does it mean to know that the husband is himself subject to Christ? And in case we missed it the first time, Paul makes clear that husbands, too, have an obligation to their wives and so makes plain what is implied in verse 18. A relationship under Christ's authority is different from a relationship under the empire, or at least it should be. It's different because the Colossians have clothed themselves with love. And suddenly marriage is more than an exchange of property or contractual arrangement, a simple hierarchy. It's a relationship between two people who have died with Christ, who have shed the old clothes of empire and put on the new. And we could say the same for the relationship between children and parents and slaves and masters. Paul claims these relationships, too, as being different under Christ than they were under the empire. Under the empire, children have an obligation to obey. But what happens when that obligation is understood as being a duty in the Lord? Under the empire, fathers owe their children nothing. But under Christ, they are called to treat their children with care. Under the empire, slaves are obliged to serve their masters. But under Christ, under the empire, masters have no obligation toward their slaves and can treat them as disposable property. But under Christ, master, masters treat your slaves justly and fairly, for you know that you also have a master in heaven. And if we think of Onesimus and Philemon, we get a little bit of the picture. Paul does not offer the kind of immediate overthrow of the status quo that we wish he had. That task fell to later generations of Christians. Only generations later was slavery determined to be sinful. And later still, the oppression of women and children was determined to be sinful, part of the old imperial way of being. Paul did not go nearly as far as we wish he had. But if we listen well, I think we can catch at least a little bit of the sound of the walls of the empire cracking. I think we can see in these verses, too, 
a hint of what to expect as we work at putting the old imperial ways away and putting on the new ways of Christ. A hint of what to expect as together we seek to become the new community of Christ, God's own answer to the rule of empire. If nothing else, my hope for our congregation is that we will begin to ask ourselves some serious questions, questions which will slowly peel away the mask of empire and so help us to see just how compromised we are, how tangled we are in empire's tentacles, and how much in need of rescue we really are. And in the process to consider again what it means to say that Jesus is our Lord, that everything belongs to Christ, that all we are and all we do is for the glory of Jesus Christ and in response to what we have been given through his death and resurrection. Questions like, what does it mean to submit to one another in Christ? We know what submission means in the empire. And we know how that imperial meaning has infiltrated the church, leading us to become too often just one more source of oppression. But Paul raises the question. I wish he'd given us the answer and a better one than he did. But he at least raises the question. Unlike the Colossians, I think it's our responsibility, our obligation to try to figure out what the answer is and to do so with full confidence that our community belongs to Jesus Christ and so will one day become exactly what Jesus intends it to be. Here, too, in our relationships to each other, we're called to live out what we claim to believe, to bear witness in this faith community and in our homes and in the world around us to what it means to be alive in Christ, to know Christ, and Christ alone is Lord and Savior, and to slowly and perhaps painfully have the last vestiges of empire torn away through the power of the Spirit until we are revealed with Christ in glory. And painful it may well be. Remember, too, that Paul was in jail when he wrote this letter, in jail in Rome, perhaps, a prisoner of the very empire he was seeking to subvert. The empire is a narcissistic power. It loves to see its own reflection. Everywhere it turns, it wants to see its own face, not a hair out of place. Everywhere it looks, its glory must be reflected back to it. Everywhere it turns, it must have its own greatness affirmed, its wisdom proclaimed, its praises rung. No questions asked, no false notes sung. An echo chamber, a hall of mirrors, this is what the empire requires for its own stability and peace of mind. And on those rare occasions when the empire does see something out of place, when it looks and sees something other than its own reflection, it reacts. And those who refuse to cooperate, who refuse to become part of that great imperial love fest, are declared disturbers of the peace and dealt with harshly. Those who in any way cause the empire to doubt itself and its own narcissistic claims suffer the imperial wrath. And so it was that Paul was in jail and awaiting trial for subverting the emperor, calling the empire's claims into question, proclaiming a different lord than Caesar. Now, appearances had to be kept up. This was no simple Galilean peasant who could be quickly condemned and executed. This was a Roman citizen, and the myth of imperial justice had to be protected, and so Paul was carefully handed off to face justice the Roman way. And while awaiting that justice, Paul wrote to the believers in Colossae. And against the backdrop of empire, and from the empire's own prison, Paul calls the Colossians to the creation of a new community, 
He calls them to take their parts in the kingdom of God, to consider everything that they once thought to be true, every lesson that they learned while living under the empire, to consider all of that dead, washed away in the waters of baptism, and to begin living in a new way, a faithful way, a way which revealed the truth of the gospel, that Jesus Christ was Lord of all and that nothing stood outside of Christ's reign, not even the empire, that all things on earth and in heaven and including the principalities and powers and spiritual entities of every kind had their beginning in him and so fell under Christ's reign. Paul calls the Colossians to create, in other words, a community which does not resemble the empire at all, a community which instead looks like Jesus, a community made in the image of God, a community, if you will, which will not reflect the empire and so may well run afoul of it. There's risk involved. Paul and the early church underwent persecution from the empire for their efforts to live faithfully. So did our Anabaptist ancestors. Now we, for our part, are more likely to face ostracism from the church from other sisters and brothers who see no contradiction between being a Christian and being an American. We may be inconvenienced and experience some economic disruption as we seek to disentangle ourselves from the empire of global consumption. Much we have taken for granted will be challenged. Much we have assumed to be for our own good will need to be rejected. Assumptions that we have long had about what God is up to in the world may need to be questioned. Relationships which up until now have been quite cozy and smooth may become more difficult and even broken. There's risk involved, I think, in asking the kinds of questions we've been asking these last weeks, which is why it's so very tempting not to ask them. As important as these questions are, I find myself wishing them to go away. I've got enough to worry about already. My life is complicated enough. Wouldn't it be easier to just turn on the TV or read a novel or the newspaper Turn on the stereo and wait till this sense of urgency passes. It sure would. But that's not what I want to do most of the time. In the first sermon of this series, I told you that I need my faith community to agree with me that the question of what it means to live faithful in the empire is important that even if our answers to that question are quite different, that you'll at least agree with me that the question itself is worth asking. And I've been moved by the level of conversation among us these last weeks. In all my years here, I don't think I've ever seen anything like it. It seems to me that the Spirit is at work among us. I'm sorry to see this come to an end, frankly. Um, There's a lot more I'd like to say and a lot more that I'd like to explore as long as the my first two empire sermons were, um, I have a lot more to say. But I'm thankful for now that we've gotten as far as we have these last weeks. And I'm glad for the results, and I'm very glad and grateful that the Spirit does, in fact, seem to be moving among us. Glad that we're at a place of stock-taking and for asking of deep questions, questions like, what do we believe? And what difference does it make? And how are we different from the world around us? And where are we compromised? And in what ways are we still living as though we'd never died to the empire at all? And how must we change and be changed? And where is Christ taking us? And are we willing to follow? These are exciting, scary, serious, and I think essential questions. Questions 
that I cannot face alone, that none of us can face alone. But together and with God's help, I believe we can begin the asking. I also ask you to hold me accountable for what I say up here, to insist that I don't just let these questions slip away into the past as we move on to next week's subject or next month's worship theme. And so I would like to end this series of sermons with a call. I want to keep on talking about and wrestling with and discerning um, what it means to live faithfully in the empire. I want to keep the conversation going. I want to be challenged and corrected and invited to a deeper commitment to Jesus and to a relationship to the empire that reflects that commitment. I want to be nurtured in hope and love. I want my anger at the way things are and my own complicity in them to be tempered by your words of peace and your reminders about the truth of Jesus Christ. I want to begin shifting my allegiance from the empire and every other false god to the one through whom all things were made and in whom all things are being redeemed. I cannot do these things alone. But with your help and with the constant presence and power of the Holy Spirit, I just may be. So, will you join me in this scary, risky, essential conversation? Will you help me how best discern how to do that? What formats this conversation may take and how this conversation connects to our congregational conversation about goals? I won't ask for a show of hands. I know how unmennonite that would be. I will instead invite you to think and pray and uh, about these things and, and to test, to test my call and to test my sense of the Spirit's movement among us to see if that matches your own and to consider seriously the risks involved in having these kinds of conversations and then to be in touch with me about your interest in working with me on what might come next. And whether you feel drawn to the conversation to keep it going or not, I do pray that all of us have been challenged by Paul's letter to the Colossians. I pray that we all have been drawn closer to Jesus. And I pray that the spirit of Christ will continue to nurture every one of us in the faith and that we each ones and everyone will learn to live more faithfully in the empire. May God make it so. Amen.